Logical Progression, Year 4, Chapter 14, Lesson 3. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa la aqibatu lam attaqeena, wa la idwana illa ala al-zalameen, wa salawatullahi wa salamuhu ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wa al-murasal ina Sayyidina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in, Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altu sahla, wa anta tajlu al-hazna idha shi'la sahla. اللهم أعنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا رب الكريم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته حياكم الله أهلا وسهلا جزاكم الله خير Tonight, mashallah, we are very fortunate to be joined by one of my close friends and a special guest who will make a appearance inshallah towards the end of the class بإذن الله تعالى uh, today is an interesting lesson because um, today uh, we're not only going to cover some key points from the text, but also going to make it uh, make that point as wide as possible to discuss something which is, um, I think, uh, an important issue. I really do think it's an important issue, um, and I think that it concerns a lot of people. And I also think that. Um, it can cause some fitna and I believe that some of the reasons why the Muslim community is genuinely is backwards thinking as it is is because of their misunderstanding of this point and so I want to talk about that um, so the text that we're going to be covering today inshallah is and we covered uh, so far in this uh, lesson we've covered the opening text which is they uh, the Adhan and Iqama are both communal obligations for males who are classed as residents for the obligatory prayers. That's what we've covered so far. And then today we will cover the text um, the from uh, 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 Imam al-Hajjawi himself. He says, uh, the people of a land who abandoned the two are to be fought. It is not permissible to take a wage for either, but it is allowed to receive a sum <coughs> um, from the treasury if no volunteers can be found. Okay? So we have two separate issues. The first one is to do with um, the status of, or, or what does it even mean that people are, 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 are fought over it? And what does it actually mean? And the second, of course, is what we're going to be covering in detail. So, from the, the first point I want to make um, clear. We've so far, over last week, and just to, not last week, just not just last week, but last few weeks, what we've confirmed is that the Hanbalis are the strictest, the Hanbali school are the strictest when it comes to the uh, adhan and the iqama. Okay, they consider it to be a fard kifaya, meaning a communal obligation upon a congregation, and also, in actual fact, they consider it to be something incredibly emphasized. And some of the narrations within the madhab also consider it to be fard kifaya, even for the individual as well. Okay, so of all the madhab, they are the ones who come down, yani strictest on this issue of giving the adhan. The rest of the the scholars, okay, are in between. And yes, there is a, a, a higher or strong, um, stricter opinion, and you will not be surprised to hear that that's from the Dahiri school of thought, the, literal, the literalist school of thought. And that is that actually, and it's of course a rejected uh, position, um, that the adhan, 
and the iqama is an actual condition of the prayer itself. Which would mean, therefore, that the one who does not do it has not prayed. Okay? So the one who would not do it has not prayed. And as I said, this is the strictest of all opinions, and it's something which... Um, which you know is something which, which is rejected. I told you my own personal opinion in the position of the majority of the scholars, and that is that it is a sunnah mu'akkada that is the position of, uh, as I said, the majority. And I, when I say the majority, there are pretty much three or four different opinions. It is the position of one of the narrations from the Hanafi school and the Shafi'i school, but it's considered to be the strongest by the later scholars as well. And that is that it is a sunnah mu'akkada for the individual for the congregation and so on. Now, I'll tell you what's interesting about this, what you're going to realize today. <coughs> that when you study this issue more and more, you actually start to understand this is more a semantic discussion than it is a legal one. Okay? What do I mean by that? When I say semantic, I mean that even though the majority, quote-unquote, could be argued to be saying that they consider the adhan and the iqama to be a sunnah mu'akkada, they do, however, sympathize and also agree with the Hanbali school, that if there are a people, a, a locality, a Muslim locality, which refuses to give the adhan publicly, then they are to be then fought, basically. So they are to be disciplined. All right? Now that's very, and I want to I I talk about that because, first of all, standard disclaimer, all right? We're not talking about Yanni anyway here because, you know, that kind of behavior obviously gets me in trouble every time. Uh, we're talking about the classical legal position of the Hanbalis. And where does that come from? What is the, uh, wh wh where does that uh, come from? And why is it important for us to study this issue? There is a very, very important uh, uh, linguistic point that we have to come away with from this lesson as students of knowledge to understand the difference between qatala and qatala. Or yuqatil and yuqtal. And if you look at the actual text, of course, it very clearly says, يُقَاتِلْ يعني they are fought, okay? Which is different from يُقْتَلْ which means they are killed, right? And so, <clears throat> and so first of all, straight off the bat, we're not, <coughs> we're not talking about a, uh, a death penalty being uh, 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 here. <coughs> we're, not talk, we're not saying that it's a, cap it's a, it's a, it's a crime to the level of kufr. It's, we're not saying that the people who, and that's very important here, the fuqaha are making it very, very clear that the one, for example, who didn't give the adhan is not someone who is kafir. He doesn't become, he doesn't apostate by that action. He hasn't committed kufr by that action, which is traditionally what would need to happen before one would say that he is fought to the death, whatever, because it's a death penalty, etc., etc. No, this is what we call ta'zir. Ta'zir. Ta'zir means discretionary punishment. Okay? This is basically a decision by the ruler to punish the people in order to bring some discipline back. It's like a civil law. It's like any other kind of uh, punishment that one would uh, uh, consider. And there's a wider question. Let me give you the hadith first of all. The hadith was narrated in Bukhari. Okay. Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Bukhari, number 585. He said that whenever the Prophet ﷺ went out with us to fight, okay, yani during war, okay, fi sabilillah, during war, um, against any nation, against any people, he never allowed us to attack until the morning. And he would wait and see. If he heard the adhan, then he would postpone the attack. And if he did not hear the adhan, then he would attack. Okay, if he would hear the adhan, he would then 
postpone because this means that there's a wrong area. Like I mentioned last time, the adhan signifies that the area is a Muslim area. And the lack of adhan indicates that it is not a Muslim area or enemy territory, etc., etc. And that's the, that's the basic point without going into the rest of the hadith and, and, and getting you know, into more issues, okay, which is not relevant so much for our point. Okay? Um, that's the point at play. So now you see... All right, that according to the Prophet, the hadith of course is in Bukhari. This is a general understanding, and I think that even even if you just common sense, you use your common sense. If there is a the prayer is something which which signifies a religion, absolute obligation, and the call to the prayer where there are people praying is an ob- obviously fundamental part of that. And in an area which is a uh, uh, in a, a Muslim country as such, which is not giving the adhan. The question needs to be asked, why on earth is that not the case? Because that is what calls the people to the most important obligation that there is. And so that's why they took it as serious as they did. Now, just to um, basically cover what Sheikh Uthameen actually says in his commentary, which is on page 47, he goes that the author is referring here, Tarakuhuma, Huma meaning both. So he's saying that the people are fought even if they leave the Adhan or the Iqama. And Sheikh Uthameen says this. What's, what's interesting here is that the the, uh, the Hanbalis have made a, a bold statement because the Adhan makes sense. Okay, the Adhan makes sense because it is what we call Min Shia'ar Islam. It's from the open, 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 well-known rituals of the religion. And so, someone who is like not doing it or preventing it, if there's like some guy who comes in says, "I don't want anyone to give the Adhan, whatever," then he is opposing one of the outwardly aspects of Islam. But we know, for example, that if people are not praying, okay, the only way that a person would find out is someone's reporting them or whatever. The, 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 the Muslims are not required to go and knock on every door and are you praying, are you not praying, are you praying, are you not praying. We know that Nabi Sallallahu said, I was not commanded to open up the hearts of the people and to look into their chests, okay. And that's so, so there's a difference between in, uh, private actions and, and external. Yani a'mal al-zahiriyya. Yani those external acts, those big acts which represent the religion. And so clearly the adhan makes sense. But the iqama as well, you would have thought that the iqama being something inside, said something quickly, said something, something quietly, etc. would not fall into the category. But Sheikh Uthameen indicates that this proves that actually there is an understanding that the actual iqama is also like an external right. It's a, a very important, yani, uh, right, R-I-T-E, by that, okay? Yani, one of the uh, rituals, yani, important rituals that there are in the Sharia, okay? However, it is, it is, it is clear, فَدَلَّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهَا عَلَامَةٌ ظَاهِرَةٌ تُسْمَعُ Okay? Um, yani, it is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is correct to say that they're, of course, not the same strength. There's no doubt, Yanni, that you can't compare the, the uh, Islamicness yani, of the Adhan compared to the Iqama or the lack of the Adhan compared to the lack of Iqama. But basically, we should understand the importance of both. The next question Sheikh Uthameen says, he says, hold on, how can we say that they are to be yani, uh, fought, okay, 
When the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that it is not permissible, the famous hadith of Bukhari, it is not permissible. The very, very, very famous and controversial hadith, okay? Controversial, I mean, for our time, okay? Because trying to explain this is a big headache, okay? It's very difficult. But this is the hadith when the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that it is not permissible for the blood of the Muslim to be spilt, the Muslim who declares that, that there is nothing worthy of worship except Allah, and that I am the messenger of Allah, except in three scenarios. Okay? So it's not permissible for the blood of a Muslim to be spilt, except in these three scenarios. Okay? zani zani basically means the one who is adulterer and he is tayyib meaning that he is elderly right i mean I, I, like i said i don't want to spend too much time on this hadith because it's not my focus today when i say a thayyib does not mean elderly per se but it's basically indicating someone whose sexual drive has reduced yani there is no excuse you know there's never an excuse of any type for any kind of zina ever but it is understandable that everyone has desires and then if someone doesn't control his desires then you know he either acts out his desires in a halal way via marriage or haram way outside of marriage whereas a person who's tayyib okay he shouldn't be considered to be in this kind of scenario right shouldn't be yani it's, uh, uh, why on earth would he do something like that so as zani of course being uh, doing zina as well which is serious enough in of itself okay um and uh, a life for a life so this is basically the capital punishment for, for, for murder. So if someone was to kill someone, then another person then is also killed. So that's basically a punishment. All right. And the third is basically apostasy. The one who leaves his religion. But here's the controversy. Is, does it mean an apostate? As a, I, I, when a person just leaves the religion, he says, I'm not I'm, I'm non-Muslim anymore. Or because the last two words of this hadith says, the one who abandons the community, okay, uh, yani who separates from the community, does that mean something extra? Does, is that a restriction or is that an added condition? So in actual fact, it's not an apostate who is uh, given the death penalty, but rather it's a person who makes war against the state, who actually not only apostates internally, but externally causes some kind of problem. So it would be more than treason, it would be something further than that. There are some of the ulama that consider that to be the case. Okay? Sheikh Muhammad bin, uh, bin Hassan, Adadu, Adadu as, as, as uh, he should be known, Adadu is one of those who believes that. It is not just for the standard apostate. Okay? Just for apostasy willy-nilly. No, that's not the case. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Anyway, the point is, what the Sheikh is saying is that, hold on, there's three, except there's only three scenarios that is possible for a death penalty to be given. So on what basis are people who are not giving the adhan, yani, uh, 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 are being attacked? On what basis? So, Sheikh Uthameen says, the meaning behind this hadith is death penalty, which is something far more specific than to attack a people and to discipline them. And there's a huge difference between al-qatal and al-qital. There's a difference between killing and fighting. And for every, and, and, and he, he says an important principle here. Not every single person that it is permissible to fight, is it permissible to kill? 
Not every single person that it is permissible to fight, is it permissible to kill. This is a golden rule in the Sharia. And that is why, as we are told in the Quran, when we have two uh, parties, okay, two parties who are trying to kill uh, one another or fighting one another, then we also fight against the two parties until they return back to the rule of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not allowed to kill them. It's not allowed to go out with the intention to kill. You go out with the intention to stop the harm. You go out with the intention to discipline and to create order and to bring back yani, some kind of uh, safety and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, so I just want to just make make that make that point. He goes, basically the takeaway point is, is that whatever one is fought for, this is something which the commander decides because of the discipline. Whereas qatl, uh, actual murder or actual death penalty is only allowed in very, very specific matters. So the fighting is something more general and the killing is something more, more, more specific. So that's the, that's the point I wanted to mention about this a text. Regardless, our takeaway point is what? This is a serious matter. Okay? That the adhan is more than just what you might say a normal sunnah. Rather, as I explained in uh, my other class, I say that it is what makes a community Islamic. The adhan brings, brings Islam to the game. And so that's why it's important that even whatever our personal opinions are on the fiqh behind the adhan, at home we should try to do it, and at work we should try to do it, even if you can Knock a, knock a sly one in the plane, Yani, I'm down with that as well. Uh, I read on the uh, portal last, I, I was uh, on the portal today, and I read uh, one of the brothers, I think he mentioned that uh, last week, he mentions that uh, he was on a flight from Malaysia to London. He pulled a classic. He goes, I was there thinking what's going to happen. And then he goes, I, I noticed that the, one of the, the air host, you know, the steward, he started making adhan in the back. In the in the uh, in the what's it called in the um, like in the gallery at the back and yeah, he needed a toilet. He goes that I was a bit concerned. I can't believe you any his point. He goes that I was a bit concerned that he's making it next to the toilet so the people in the toilet would hear. I'm like, yeah, is that your biggest concern, bro? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know what I mean. Guy guy pulls off a killer, and he knocks out the other in the in the plane, and that's what's getting. Concerning you, yalla go and join him. Anyway, he said that I joined him for a prayer and we prayed together, which is nice. That's why I'm always behind militia air. I'm always support, even though they're dead and buried, yalla. They're dead and buried, man. There's such a campaign against air militia. Everyone's against the Masakin. Anyway, all right. So now the point comes. This is the big. This is the big discussion. Okay. The sheikh then says that it is not permissible to take a wage for either. So it's not permissible to give a wage. For the one who gives the adhan or the iqama, but it is allowed to receive a razq with a ra, okay? That's what the Arabic says. A sum, I've translated it as sum, from the treasury, Baytul Mal, okay, if no volunteers can be found. Alright? So in summary, this is very straightforward. It's basically saying that you can't be paid for the actual job, but you can receive like a stipend, okay? You can receive something to keep you going from the public uh, treasury. Um, but only upon the condition that you can't find someone who will do it free of charge. Okay. Now, we need to step back and look at this whole situation. What's going on? Why are we even having this discussion? Why is it that there's a problem for someone who's doing work to be paid and so on and so forth? And where this issue starts from is, is this. Okay. Is it permissible to take payment for an act of qurba? Okay. 
you know we have a few words which I want to I want to introduce you to. All right, and because this is a logical progression, the class it's important that big concepts in a religion we do cover as part of the fiqh as well, and we get them done and dusted now so that we can build upon. There are there can be it can be said that there are three categories. You can divide everything into many different ways depending how you you, you categorize, but actions. There's one way of dividing actions up, and if you did, you could you could divide them up into three categories. You could call it ta'a, qurba, and ibadah. If we were to give a a one-word translation for each, which is impossible, but if we were, ta'a would be obedience, yeah. Ibadah would be worship, and the word qurba would struggle with to find a single word. But if you understand the linguistic meaning of qurba qurba means is from yani comes from to be close to you know qareeb when we say something qareeb so qurba means to get close to so qurba is when you get close to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now i want to explain the difference between these three words because it's very very important a um let me give you some definitions okay qurba means any act which one intends to come closer to Allah thereby. Any act, the word qurba, any act which one intends to come close to Allah thereby. Anything that you do, that you do to become, yani, taqarruban ila Allah azza wa jal. Yani, you do that so that you become close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's qurba. Okay? Now, that is actually interesting because what we have real what, when you when you define it like that, you realize that therefore there are some acts of qurba that do not require an intention, because it is possible to do certain things without an ikhlas intention. Okay, it is possible to do certain things to come close to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala without an intention. Does that make sense? First of all, okay. If it doesn't make sense, I ask the question, what is the function of the intention? What's the function of an intention? Why do we, why do we ask for an intention? Legally speaking, because the Prophet ﷺ said that all actions are by intention. All right, okay. So, what does this actual hadith mean? It's not habitual, it's more... Uh... All actions are by intention. What does that actually mean? Does that mean everything that you do must have an intention? Or does it mean that there are that any action is impossible except that it requires an intention? What does it actually mean? The reward is based on what you intended. Okay, the reward is based upon what you intended. Okay. Alright. If we accept that, that the reward is based upon what you intended. Does that also mean that, therefore, that they are possible to have multiple intentions? Yes? Would you agree? So what if I argue that there could be some actions where it's not possible to have multiple intentions? Okay. So, so... So say it again, sorry? So if it's not multiple, yeah. then you will at least have one intention for the action. Okay. So, so you're saying that you're, you're saying no, it's possible to have an action. No, what did I say? 
No, you said, you know, is it possible not to have multiple intentions? Yeah, is, that's what, exactly, that's what I said. Is it possible to have an action that doesn't have multiple intentions? Yes. yes. Right. If that action itself was only possible for it to be for the sake of Allah, what would that then categorize that action then? That's another point now. Ibadah. Okay. Zafar said that that would then therefore become an act of ibadah. That's not actually necessarily the case, but we're going to come to ibadah in a second. So for example, Imam Al-Qarafi, who's one of the major Maliki scholars, okay, he goes, he says something really interesting. He goes that there's Al-Qurubat Al-Lati La Lubsafi, La Tahtaj That there are acts of Qurba, there are some acts where you seek to get close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where there's no Lubs. <coughs> yani, what does that mean? That there's no possibility of any confusion about who it's for. Or there's no possibility of any kind of sharik. There's no need for a niyyah, he goes. He says, and he gives the examples. He says, Kal-imanu billahi ta'ala. Like to have iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wa ta'zimihi. And to magnify him. Wa ijlalihi. And to exalt him. Wa al-khawf min niqamihi. And to be afraid of his anger. Wa rija'li ni'amihi. And to hope for his blessings. Wa tawakkur ala karamihi. And to have trust, to have trust in his generosity. And to be يعني, in awe of his magnificence. And love for his, and this is a really good one actually, and love for his, his beauty. Okay? Uh, and, and so on and so on. And so, يعني, just ask yourself, right? Um, and all of these can be debated, but I, 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 this, this is not Aqidah class, okay? So we're not going to spend too much time there, but you, I think you'll get the point that when you are in awe of his, when you are in awe of his excellence, and you're in awe of his magnificence, or you love his beauty, okay? Yani, two things. If you love his beauty, who else is going to benefit from that? Yani, why would I want to show someone else that I love his beauty? Does that make sense? Why would I... Something which is internal, first of all. It's not something I showed to someone else. Remember that... Remember that, that, That's where you didn't think, yeah? You thought that actions are just external actions. Don't forget that the actions of the heart are also actions. And that the actions of the heart are also rewarded. So a person who's sitting there and he's making tadabbur over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who's he going to be doing that for? Yeah, and if you're doing something inside, not doing it for my mom or for my dad or for my wife, or for my enemy, or for whatever, because it's something inside. So that's possible to do an action without necessarily doing it for someone else, number one. Number two, is it something which I get rewarded for? That's another separate question. Is it possible, is it, uh, Yani, when you reflect, or you, you think about Allah and you love Him, do you get rewarded for that? Of course you do. Every That's what qurba is. Anything that you do in order to get close to Him. And so if you like listening to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's words, so that you can become close to Him, Okay, and that's why Imam Al-Qarafi continues. He says, وَقْرَعَةُ الْقُرْآنِ But I didn't want to mention it as an example because that could be, be mis- misconstrued. You could understand that in two different ways. But I just want to just introduce that concept to you, that it is possible for a qurba to not have an intention. That is why an act of worship is a category underneath qurba. So qurba is bigger. In other words, we can say that every act of worship is 
a qurba, but every act of qurba is not necessarily an act of worship. Ibadah, how are we going to define ibadah? Let's define ibadah. Ibadah is the slave obeying the command of his Lord. There are so many different uh, definitions of ibadah, but this is the one that I've chosen. The slave obeying the command of his Lord. Now, this is important. These words are, are very heavily laden, yani, okay? A lot of meaning. A slave, yani abd, and ubudiyah is there in the word ibadah. There has to be khudu', there has to be yani submission, and there has to be obedience, which is ta'a. But it is for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is something which is done for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is also correct to say that most, if not all, and I say that only to avoid a technical difference of opinion, most, if not all, of every act of ibadah requires an intention. And that's what makes it yani, individually diff- different to, the, to, do, to a qurba. Okay? So, anyway... I think that that makes yani, uh, uh, sense. And then the third word is ta'a, obedience. Okay? Obedience. I'll ask you a question. In order of biggest to most restricted, what's the order? Of ta'a, of ibadah, of qurba? Ta'a first. Ta'a first? Why is ta'a first? It's obedience, right? Yes, obedience. So as long as you don't go against what you can do, you're obedient. So basically, we, from what I understand, from, from what I get here, right now we are obedient, yet we don't, as in that's an, uh, that's an example, but um, being obedient for me is not going against something. That's fine. But so there are different acts of qurba and ibadah as well that might, that might be, for example, because there are two ways to obey Allah. So there are two ways to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in principle. You obey that which He tells you to do and you avoid that which He tells you not to do. Right? So, so in, the, in that scheme of things, where does ta'a come? Yep. I would say qurba. Qurba is biggest? Yeah. Okay. It will include the uh, <coughs> ibadah in there. Qurba includes ibadah, we've already established that. I'll go the other way around. Qurba yep. is the most general. Qurba is the most general, then that's what he said. Then it's ibadah. Okay. Ta'a is at the top because it's the most specific. Ta'a is the, at the bottom, you mean, because it's most specific. specific yeah. Okay. No, no, you're saying ta'a is the most important? No, 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 we're not talking about important. I'm not talking about We're talking about biggest, meaning what's the most general, what's the most specific? No. Okay. Ta'a is the most... Most general. If you don't obey, then yep. you won't be, be able to worship or do ibadah. If you don't have the intention to obey, unless you want to start first and foremost, then you start to obey, and then you start saying, how do I obey? And then you feel like I need to pray. Then you say, I need to get close to this. Let me give you, uh, let me explain to you what the answer is. The answer is that ta'a is the most general, and ibadah is the most specific. And I'll give you a way of understanding this. You know ta'a, it requires no intention and you don't even need to know who it's for. Okay, this is, these are two characteristics. Okay, you don't need to have an intention and you don't even need to know who it's for. 
It's so general that you can make obedience of anyone. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Obey Allah and His Messenger. So it doesn't even need to be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you don't, to, to, to be obedient, you don't even need to have to do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? Or for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I should say. And it doesn't require a niyyah. Qurba comes underneath it. Qurba also doesn't need a niyyah, but you need to know who it's for. Yes, we said that, that qurba is an act which is done to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's more specific. And then the most specific of all is ibadah, which requires a niyyah, which requires you to know who you're doing it for, and there are other conditions, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, that's, I, th- I thought that's important because um, I think, yeah, just to get an idea of what we're talking about. This mas'ala, this issue is, or the question that we want to answer is, is it possible to take a reward for an act of qurba? And remember, we remind ourselves what we're doing it, what we're doing. We are doing an act for, to get close thereby to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the idea would be, if you're taking a payment, then you're taking a reward, Right? And if you're not taking a payment, then you're doing it for the sake of Allah. That would be the basic understanding. Does that make sense or not? Does that make sense? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran a few verses. Whoever, if any desire the life of this world, will all of its finery, we, will, we shall repay them in full. We should repay them in full in this life for their deeds. This is verse 15 of Surah Hud. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so again, if any desire only the life of this world, you see only is not in the Arabic, but you'd put that in, in the brackets, okay? That's what translations put in. Only in the brackets. But without the brackets, the verse basically says, If any desire the life of this world with all of its finery, we shall repay them in full in this life for their deeds. Okay? They will be given no less. They, yani, they will not be skanked, basically. There will be no bakhs. There will be no stinginess. They'll get it full. What's that basically mean? If you do your action for the sake of this dunya, you'll get paid for the sake of this dunya, and that's it. In the afterlife, don't expect anything. In fact, if you want to hear the full rest of the verse, But such people will have nothing in the hereafter but the fire. Their work here will be fruitless and their deeds futile. Why? Because the act that they did for the sake of Allah, so and so, actually they didn't want to do it for the sake of Allah. They did it for the sake of dunya. We gave you everything in full. And afterwards, don't expect anything for it. You're in the fire. It's all finished. Yani disaster. Okay? That's 15, 16, Surah Hud. We know, for example, in the, I, I think everyone knows, in Surah Yaseen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَجَاءَ مِنْ أَقْصَى الْمَنِيْتِ رَجُلٌ يَسْعَى قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ اتَّبِعُوا الْمُرْسَلِينَ اتَّبِعُوا مَنْ لَا يَسْأَلُكُمْ أَجَرًا وَهُمْ مُحْتَدُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the man who came running from the furthest part of the city. And he said, يَا قَوْمِ اتَّبِعُوا الْمُرْسَلُونَ My people followed the messengers. Follow those people who do not ask you for any payment. And they are the rightly guided. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says on the, the tongues of the prophets, Ya qawmi la as'alukum alayhi ajra. Oh my people, I don't ask you for any payment. In ajri illa ala, ala, illa ala ladhi fatarani. Afala ta'aqilun. 
My reward is upon the one who created me. Don't you understand? So this again is Surah uh, Hud 51. You can see that there is a clear emphasis, okay, from the messengers, clearly inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to make it super clear to the people that they are being sent to, I don't want payment. So you know payment is aib. You know aib? Yani shameful. It's like yani uh, uh, humiliating. So they rec- they're basically saying that the payment is 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 something that we cannot be associated with, and therefore, hey, hey, I'm not, listen to what I'm saying. I don't want any money from you. This is free, okay? I'm not going to take anything from you. I'm not going to take anything from them. I'm not being paid to say this. I don't have a vested interest, okay? My reward will be in the akhirah. This is the statement, take it. I, and, and when in Surah Yasin, in the story, the, even the other man who was saying, why would you not listen to these people? They don't even want in payment from you, etc., etc., etc. Now, I want to make some comments. This is basically the introduction that many scholars who want to say that all of this is haram, this is what they put out. And they make it very, you know, they make it into a scary situation, um, which I want to give, which I want to give clarity to. Number one, let me make it very clear. There is an absolute consensus of all the scholars and anyone who has half a brain, okay, that anyone who does an act for the sake of this dunya alone, then they will, yani it is haram, not only is it haram, it could be even more serious. And yani in the akhirah, it's all finished. Okay? So, what would this be? In modern day scenario, this... this about acts of worship. An act of worship, of course. We're talking about acts of worship. Yeah? So this would be, for example, a person who says, who is told, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made Salatul Maghrib obligatory upon you. And he says, right, okay, 10 pounds and it's done. Yeah, he goes, give me ten pound, and is 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 done, right? So here we're talking about a classical situation where that's yani, you know, and that's why there is a ittifaq, yani there is a consensus of the scholars that it's not permissible to take payment for any farda'in. You can write that straight down, okay? It is not permissible to take payment for any obligatory act because it's not possible to then. I mean, how could you take payment for an obligatory act? Uh, you get you you got you got my point. You got my my example. Then the rest of the issue, in principle, before we get into the specific evidences, the rest of the issue now surrounds about, is it effectively possible to do an act for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and still take payment and it still be for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That's the big question. And it is this main reason why the scholars want to push you away from taking this money, whatever that position is. And that's why you will see in the language of these scholars, very clear kind of references to the words that they use for employment. So for example, they will always make it clear that it is impermissible completely, just like it does in this text, for a person to receive a fee. For a fee. Yani ujra or ajra, okay, which means basically a payment or compensation for an act. Because they can see that if we allow something like that, there was a difference between saying that this is, a, this is a person who says, I will not give the adhan unless I get paid for this. And then if you give me this payment, then I will make the adhan for Isha and whatever. You're basically putting that person in a situation where it's very difficult for him to separate between doing it for the sake of Allah and doing it for a sum of money. And, and, and I, I hope that you understand you know, that's, that's basically the issue. I just want to let you know that when it comes to acts which are not obligatory, fardain, 
there is some kind of discussion amongst the scholars about whether it's permissible or not. You know, for example, uh, this is, might come as a surprise, yani, but in the Hanbali Madhab, it's actually permissible, according to the Hanbalis, that if there's a person who passes away and he has prayers that he had vowed to pray, okay? So, you know, that he, for example, he said, if I pass my exams, yeah, then I'm going to pray, you know, 20 raka'a nafal, whatever. And he's fit and he's well and he can pray it. And then he passes away. You know that it's obligatory for those vows to be taken care of. Yeah. And this is the same for fasting and for hajj and for umrah. And you know, yeah, and that's a whole other chapter which was for another time. How do we deal with yani, the actions of people that, you know, that, that they owe to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, this whole chapter, the actions that are owed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, are they paid for or not paid for, what, they, what was done, whatever. Anyway, the Hanabila, they said... They said that if the, the wali, meaning the guardian over the estate, the one who has been left responsible for this person after he passes away, the most senior person, the one who's going to be the heir and the one who's going to divide the estate, he should basically take the responsibility and deal with it. Yani pray them himself, the humbly say. If he can't or doesn't want to, they said it is permissible for him to find a guy and pay him to pray for the other guy. Can you believe that? Yeah? Alright? So basically find some pack and say, right bro, knock out 20 rakah for my man, yeah? Alright? And here's 20 quid or something like that. The Hanbalis, they consider that to be permissible. Alright? And obviously, there's a big discussion. The majority of the ulama consider that to be completely impermissible. But anyway, that's not our problem. Um, uh, uh, and I am, of course, with the majority because... You know, once you open that door, Yanni, that is one big door, Yanni. You know what I'm saying, yeah? To get man's them praying for you afterwards. Um, there are some, subhanAllah, some people said that, uh, uh, actually, um, uh, uh, they tried to say that there are some scholars, in fact, I wrote it down, subhanAllah, okay? Yes, there are some <laughs> of the Salaf. There are some from the Salaf, and I mean from the, from, I'm talking any proper scholars, so don't any you know no 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 waste of time. That considered that this is permissible for any prayer that is left behind after you pass away. So even your obligatory prayers that you missed out of laziness, the ones that you slept on, the ones X Y Z whatever, they said that you could yani pay on behalf of that. So anyway, that's a minority position. Of course, it's rejected. But I want you to know that it's there. All right, in our tradition. And the evidences and so on and so forth. So this issue is a lot bigger than what you may think it, you know, uh, uh, than, because the person, the person who's being paid for that, what's his intention, Yani? You know, if you go and say, right, I'm going to pray for my man, I'll have 20 quid. What is that intention there? Right? What, what are you doing? So you can see how, how, how difficult the issue is, yet scholars allowed that because they considered it was not an obligatory act. For example, the other famous example, the, the one that you probably are all most aware of, is the one who didn't do hajj when he was fit and well. So he didn't do hajj when he was fit and well, and now he passes away. Hajj badal, which is when you do a hajj on behalf of someone else, can a person receive payment for it? And pretty much the majority of the scholars allow a person to receive payment for it, but not 
uh, and then they add conditions. They said the payment that you receive cannot be a payment so that it becomes a job and a source of income, but rather the payment should be to cover any costs and maybe something you know reasonable on top for the time or whatever, loss of earnings, for example. But it can't be like a business. It can't be that this is what I'm going to be actually doing this Hajj for, to make money. All right? So I want you to understand that there is a laxity in this issue that we need to appreciate is there. Okay? Yeah. Question on this issue. So why can't an act have a dual intention? So for example, if you give charity to someone, your, your intention is obviously to please them, I'll get the reward for that, but also to improve the physical state of that person. So... The question is, is, why can't an act have a dual intention? Of course, an act can have a dual intention. The question is, how safe does a person... This is not going to be the primary evidence for prohibiting it, of course. Mm. I'll come to that. The question is this. How safe does a person feel in their primary intention? That's the real issue. So, for example, like, 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 like charity, right? Like the floods at the moment. You will see that there is a major push on social media and the news... To really show that the Muslims are getting out there and really helping, you know, non-Muslims in their houses or whoever uh, in mosques and so on and so forth. If there's a person who doesn't give charity or he's a bit stingy or whatever, right, and looks at these other folks doing this, he says, that's an awesome idea, you know that. We really need a lot of PR, man, and that's, that's me right there. And you know what? SubhanAllah, it's an act of charity. Sadaqah, it will be all my time and money that I give will be for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I have not been sent to open that guy's heart. But I would ask the question, what was your primary intention in this? And which is the primary intention that you want to put forward to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That is the, that's the point. Now, this person could quite correctly say, you know what? I'm quite happy for this not to be a pure act for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but do it for the PR purpose. That was my main uh, that's my main motivation. That's what instigated. And you know what? I hope as a result of that, the, the, the situation of the Muslims is made better, etc. So it's an indirect one, whatever. So the question is here that how confident... Yeah, I mean, this is an example which um, is a good one in that it makes people think. But once you think, you realize it's a good safe bet. It's a safe bet because you will rarely personally benefit. Yeah, the, the threat is personal benefit. In this one, the, dual, the second intention is going to be the community benefiting. And the community benefiting is an act of ibadah anyway. But it's a worked example which shows you the process. So the answer is yes, it is possible. But yani, it's a threat, especially if you have a personal interest. That is why. That is why. When you see that the evidences and the discussions of this and such a massive discussion there's 30 pages that i've put together here and i'm gonna just some summarizing i'm summarizing them super quick now okay when it comes to actual receiving of payment you'll see that the scholars will become easy or they will allow something and they'll become stricter in something else for example the judge okay a judge a judge is a employed position yes who is an employee of the state, and the state should pay for him as a job. However, a judge is doing nothing but pure Islamic work. Because person brings him problem, qada, he does qada, he gives judgment according to the sharia, kitab Allah, and the, and the sunnah Torah, and he gives a ruling, and he gets paid for it. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Are you doing this job of qada for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or are you doing it for 
the fact that, yani, you know, whatever. Now, then the scholars then say, what if the Baytul Mal or the state do not pay him? Is it permissible for him to take the payment from the litigant themselves or from the claimant himself? Now you can see the obvious ethical problem there. If you're taking payment from the guy who's wanting you to judge, then obviously you're going to then be under threat of giving a judgment which is not yani, sincere. And so the scholars in principle make it impermissible and yet they allow it if there is an absolute need. The, the predominant position of the scholars is that they will allow it in a case of need. What do they mean by need? This person has got no other income, he's got no other yani, source of money, his uh, family is dependent upon him, and if he doesn't do this work, then he can't get any money to his family. And so for he has to take money from someone, and there is no other source other than this guy, well, they will allow him to do it, and they'll say to him, fear Allah, and make sure you don't let it yani, impact upon your, your judgment, or make it biased, etc., etc., etc. So these are the points that I want you to know. Now, um, I just want to say to you, why is it that the Hanbalis are super strict on this issue? They are the strictest again on this issue, in terms of not allowed to take any kind of money, or any kind of wage, or anything like that. And first of all, I just want to make it clear that actually... Um, uh, when I say that the super strictest, I mean in terms of ajr, meaning payment. Now, let me make a big differentiation. Even the modern day scholars like Sheikh Al-Bani and Sheikh, uh, I don't know, yani all, all the modern day scholars, I mean, even in this book here, even the Hanabila, even Sheikh Uthaymin himself, they all do not allow ajr. Now, what does ajr mean? It means something which you are contracted to receive. So you will definitely receive, and if you don't receive, then you won't do the job. They do not allow contracts. That's basically the, the issue here. Because any kind of contract, any kind of set wage for your job, they consider it to be impermissible. But you've seen that they've said that they allow the razq. And what's a razq? Razq, as I said, is like some kind of supplementary payment, which comes from the treasury. The treasury is what? It's a body which is set up for the general uh, benefit of the Muslims. That's the definition of Baytul Mal. It's a body for the benefit of the Muslims. And what is the concept of Razq? Razq is not meant to be seen as a wage. It's meant to be seen as, as mukafa, something to basically keep you going and to allow you to survive on yani, your family and so on and so forth, to, yani, just to, 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 to keep your, yourself afloat, basically. And the most important characteristic, characteristic of the Razq is that it is not contractual and it is not conditioned and it is completely yani, up in the air meaning that it is given uh, 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 you know when the when the ruler decides to and it's an amount that you should take whether a large or a little and yeah you understand what I'm trying to say yeah so that's that's the difference between a wage which is uh, what's a wage a wage is something which you negotiate no I want more no no I want more no I want double then you get your double. And then you get it and you must pay me. I don't care. And if you don't pay me, I'll take you to court. That's what a wage is. It's a contract. Whereas a razq is like a gift. It's something which should be taken. And that's why the scholars said that if there is no Baytul Mal or the Baytul Mal doesn't have enough to pay, then is it permissible for the people of the masjid to put some money together? Tabarru'an, meaning donations? They said yes. Because it would be basically donations. The imam would just take it and say, yep, I, I, I'll take it. He's not allowed to question the amount. He's not allowed to say, is it small or a lot or not or whatever. He's not allowed to say, it's the end of the month, where's my money? He's given it when he gets it. When he doesn't get it, he doesn't say anything. And they all allow that. They all allow that by consensus. And the humblies, they do not allow the taking of ajr.
All right. Why is it that they don't they don't allow that? Because of two main hadith. Okay. The first hadith, the first hadith, and Nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he said to uh, uh, Uthman ibn Abi al-As. Okay. He said to Uthman ibn Abi al-As, who said, "O Messenger of Allah, make me the Imam of my people." And the Prophet ﷺ told him, take, yani, find yourself a mu'adhin who does not take any money for the adhan. Take, find yourself a mu'adhin la ya'khudu ala adhanihi ajra. Take a adhan, yani mu'adhin, who does not receive payment for his adhan. This hadith is narrated by al-Nasai, narrated by Imam al-Tirmidhi, uh, 209 and also narrated by Imam Abu Dawood. This hadith was considered to be authentic by Sheikh Lalbani and a number of the contemporary scholars. The, that's the first hadith. The second hadith, okay, is the hadith which is just known famously as the hadith of Ubay bin Ka'b. This hadith is an interesting one. Ubay bin Ka'b, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he <laughs> Sorry, not Ubay bin Kaab, Afwan. Hadith of Ubad ibn Samit. Uh, my, uh, my mistake. Uh, hadith of Ubadah ibn Samit, radiallahu ta'ala an, anhu. He said that I taught the people from Ahlul Sufa the, the book and the Quran. Basically, I taught, them, I taught them the deen. And one of them, one of them gifted me a bow. Yeah, a bow. So... He said, this isn't, this isn't uh, 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 money. This isn't money. It's not mal. And I'm going to use it feasibilillah. Yani, so look at his yani, thinking. This isn't money, and I'm going to use it feasibilillah. And I will go to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and I will certainly ask him. So I came to him, and I said to him, Ya Rasulullah, Rajulun ahda ilayya qawsan. He said that there's a man, he gave me a gift of a, a bow, and I taught him the kitab and the Quran, and it's not money, and I will use it fi sabilillah. The Prophet said, In kunta tuhibbu faqbilha. If you want to carry and be bridled with the bridle of the fire, then accept it. If you want to be bridled with the bridle of the fire, then accept it. Which is a very strong, severe reaction. Okay? This hadith has been narrated by Abu Dawood and by Ibn Majah uh, as well. And um, it has, this is what, the what I was referring to, it has another narration which is a supporting narration which is a hadith of Bayb Ka'ab as well. And this was considered to, to be authentic by Sheikh Al-Bani as well and um, a few other of the muhaqqiqeen. Okay, this is the point of the People who say that the hadith, that, that it is impermissible. What did you learn from these two narrations? The first one, that the mu'addin is someone who the Prophet ﷺ doesn't want to take a, a payment for. And therefore a person should strive to actually try and find one. So that's, that's a point that you can, you can take a lesson from. And you say, okay, we need to find someone who doesn't take payment for. But actually if you think about it, the hadith itself does not prohibit the mu'addin taking a payment. That's the first point. But anyway, we park that to the side. This hadith is something far stricter. What do we say in response to this one? Um, I have no doubt about it. This hadith is weak. 
Not only is this hadith weak, this hadith was considered weak by Ibn Abdul Bar, by Imam al-Shawkani, by a number of the early muhaddithin and the later muhaddithin, and therefore it is not considered strong enough to use as an evidence, number one. Number two, if this hadith, we, we were to consider it to be authentic, we just say, khalas, the hadith is authentic and no problem, then, you know, uh, it's, you know uh, let's, let's, let's act by it. Then the meaning of this hadith is also possible to be understood, that the Prophet ﷺ is making it clear for this person, making it clear to this person, yani Ubad and Basamit, that if your intention really is for the sake of the bowl, then that is basically your punishment. If that is, yani it's a warning. It's a warning to him to understand how important it is to have ikhlas for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is an understanding. Yani it's a ta'wil of the hadith. Why would you make this ta'wil of the hadith? Why would you make this ta'wil? The reason you make this ta'wil is because we have hadith Bukhari, which is yani, super authentic, super famous, and yani, um, I don't know, before I say it, anyone wants to tell me which one it is? It's the hadith of Ibn Abbas, uh, narrated by Bukhari, he said that there are a group of the companions of the Messenger of Allah who were going by yani, a people and then they came to them, uh, the, the, the tribe came to them, is anyone, are there any healers amongst you? Is there a Raqi amongst you? And then he said that, yes, you know, there is. And you know the hadith, basically. We're not going to fix this until you give us a sheep. And so he read Surah Al-Fatiha upon them. And then he came to them. And then, you know, they took that. They went back to the Prophet Wasallam, And um, the people said to the Messenger of Allah Wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, أَخَذَ عَلَى كِتَابِ اللَّهِ أَجْرًا they, they took payment for the Book of Allah. And the Prophet Wasallam said, إِنَّ أَحَقَّمْ أَخَذْتُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَجْرًا كِتَابَ اللَّهِ that the most deserved thing that you take a payment for is the book of Allah. The most deserved thing that you take a payment for is the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also, we know that in the other hadith, again in Bukhari, we know that there was a person that when the Prophet was marrying him off and he needed to give a dowry to the other, uh, to the girl, he had nothing to give. And in the end, basically, he said, teach her some of the Quran. And so the Quran has been given also a monetary value because the dowry is meant to be monetary. And so on and so forth. So there are a number of evidences which show, and again, if you look at the basic principle, you will see in conclusion, all right? And this is what I want to conclude with. The majority of the scholars allow the taking of uh, a payment as a wage for the job itself of whatever that person is doing. So, for example, the one who teaches the Quran, he is allowed to take a payment for teaching it, even though the one who recites the Quran we know is something which has been specifically warned against the one who recites the Qur'an in a certain way for the sake of the people. So you need to understand that that person is thrown face first into the fire. Why is that? That is because he does it solely for the sake of the people and not really for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in all of these fatawa that the scholars will give that is permissible for the scholar to take a payment, it's permissible for the muhaddith. And by the way, when I say permissible, don't make it, don't think that I'm actually encouraging this behavior. In fact, I couldn't discourage it any more than, I, than, 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 than possible. All right? I, I've, I've spoken about this. I've written about this in detail. I've said to you that it is... It is our major weak point, anyone in Islamic work, 
anyone in the da'wah who takes payment from the people is always going to be under the, the, the microscope. Every single thing that he does, every single thing that he buys, every single fund that he has, anything he eats, everything is going to be, this is from the money of the people, this is charity from the people, this is whatever. And I told you guys before, a couple of years back, one of the wisdoms of the fact that the Prophet ﷺ prohibited zakah upon the Prophet ﷺ is because that they would not make ta'an in his honor to bring his self down. And that's why the family of the Prophet ﷺ also stay away. And that's why when we talk about from the fiqh of zakah, which we, which we covered, or not here, but when, we talk, when, we, when I talk about the fiqh of zakah, we don't want to tell the people that you're receiving zakah. It is not yani, it's aib to tell, you know, say to someone that this is from the zakah, whatever. The only, the only position that you are allowed to tell or should tell a person that you are giving them zakah is if they might misuse it or they don't understand yani, its yani, value or whatever, whatnot, yani, because it has conditions and that person is, has is some concern over him. So in principle, you don't tell a person you're receiving charity because it's aib for that person. It's also hum humiliating for that person as well. And so I, I want you to know, for all the people here, and everyone else and whatever, try and find a, 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 a profession. It's the sunnah of the companion. It's the sunnah of the prophets. You look at Dawood Zakaria you look at Suleiman you look at Yani, all of the different, they were either carpenters, they were metallurgy experts, they would work on making arms, they were shepherds, they were uh, weavers, okay? And I'm going to release something on that, yani, an old text that I used to have. I'm going to re-edit that and I'll be releasing that soon, inshallah, to give you an example of how important it is to go and work. Sufyan Athori, the very famous statement, he used, to, he used to go out and do business, he used to encourage the, the Tabi'in to make business, and when the people used to, and the people used to criticize the amount of money he used to make, we're talking thousands, okay? He would say, shut your mouth. He said, it's, it's, it, he goes, it's because of this money, and he'd hold up the money, he goes, it's because of this money that I make with my own effort, that yani, the the uh, that I made I, I retain my honor. If it wasn't for this money, the kings would wipe their noses with us. Because you, be, if you don't have that money and you don't work and you don't have that, then you have to go to the king. And if you go to the king, then he's only going to give you the money as, lo as long as you give him the fatwa and you give him the you know the position and the this and the that whatever. So, yeah, and what I want to say is that there's no doubt about it that when it comes to our recommendation, you should always have a profession, always have side income, always have that to protect yourself from the able of the people, to protect yourself from the tongues. Sufyan Athawi said again in another narration, collected by Abu Bakr Khalal, he said that it's this money which protects us from the long tongues of the people. Because that's all they want to do. But if they know this person is a doctor, this person is an engineer, this person is whatever, this person is into business, he's yani got his investments and whatever, and he does this on the side, there's no doubt. Imam Ahmed, he was told that there's a... <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is where the hardcore statements come out. Imam Ahmed said, uh, uh, in the, in the, you know that Imam Ahmed has the, the, the questions. There are books which are collected, which are questions that were asked to Imam Ahmed. In one of these versions, one of his companions asked him, uh, uh, Sheikh, that there's a man who comes and says that I will not pray tarawih behind, I will not pray tarawih for you except for this much and this much. Okay? He goes, and Imam Ahmed said, he goes, a person's going to pray behind this person? And someone's going to pray behind this guy? And he said, so it's that much of a aib, yani, okay? Um, and uh, uh, Imam Ahmed and Ishaq ibn Rahway and a number of the uh, Ibn Hibban and these early scholars of hadith uh, there was also a practice of people who would charge for the hadith, yani to recite hadith upon you. Right? So when you would recite hadith, they would say, yeah, this will cost this much, this will cost this much. Imam Ahmed and so on, they would not only, only did they consider it haram, but they would not take hadith from that person. 
They would not take hadith from that person. However, other major muhaddithin did. Ibn Jaym, for example, if you look at the Alfiya of uh, Al-Iraqi, and you will see that he quotes in there directly the Ibn Jaym, a number of other muhaddithin, they did actually charge for their <coughs> hadith, and it is not impermissible, because as, as I was listening to a lesson from Sheikh Al-Khudair, and he said that, if you think about it, if a person's allowed to charge for the Qur'an and teaching, that's something which is the most riskiest, because it's the book of Allah, and it's the most, you know, and so therefore everything which is less than that, of course, must be permissible. And so therefore, again, we will say that this is something which is permissible if you can protect your intention, but there's no doubt about it, that a person should try and find their source of income elsewhere, all right, to protect themselves, in terms of the ruling, the class position is that it is permissible for the mu'addin and for the imam to receive uh, some uh, to receive uh, uh, some of money. And to ask to answer the question, which is the big one, in our current time in non-Muslim countries, can they receive what is known as the wage? Okay, which is different and going against the humbly position. My my answer is yes, they can. And there are a number of scholars that have been trying to give this fatwa, but because of the difficulties and the political sensitivities of the issue, they won't say it, okay? It requires guts, basically, to say it. Because the hadith they're worried of, the conditioning, the putting a contract in, they're worried of. I want to say to you this. As long as a person can guarantee himself that when he takes this position, that he's not doing it for the sake of the actual position, or the actual fame, or the money itself, then it is permissible for him to take that position. I believe that. Now, I don't make it easy for that person because I believe at the same time that it is completely disgraceful how much imams get paid, right? I believe that all imams in this country, right? Because the American situation, which has a far more professional and corporate approach to things, yeah, and he has pretty much got their, you know, I mean, they're not, you know, they also say the same problem, but they're nowhere compared to how bad it is in, this U- in the UK. I think that the wages of the imam should be tripled, as a minimum. Because I don't think the imams, in general, get paid more than 15,000, 20,000 pounds a year, which is nothing, which is nothing. And I want to say to you that most of these rulings that consider it impermissible and so on is based upon a reality at that time. Well, you know, at that time, you didn't need anything, right? The life at that time was so simple. People live around the corner. There's no issue concept of gas or costs or car or maintenance or insurance or X or Y. There's no issues of schooling and tuition fees and blah, blah. Life was completely and utterly different, okay? And so, so, so financially, it's a whole different reality. Secondly, holistically completely different reality. At that time, Imam had some respect. People of Quran, people of Deen had respect. Now, I was listening to that presenter. Have you guys seen the video that Yasser Qadi posted a couple of weeks ago about the guy who was interviewing the, uh, the ISIS guy who said that, oh, yeah. Yani, you're kafir. Yeah. And he goes, what, you mean you're going to kill me now? He goes, yeah, if I, if I had the chance, I'd kill you. Yani. You know that one, yeah? So that's an NBC program, very famous program. And that presenter is very, very famous, all right? He does that, he's called Athamina. He is called an 8 p.m. kind of primetime talk show. He does it, you know, all the time. And he's, he's a funny guy. He's a very nice, I, I like his show. And I remember watching one of his shows back in the day where he had some imams on when the Saudi, when some of the, when in Saudi they were trying to fix the situation. They were trying to, you know, Sheikh Adil Kilbani, you know, the uh, imam, uh, black imam. You know the one who had all the controversy? Mm-hmm. Imam of Kaaba. Mm-hmm. He started leading the salah because he was black and everyone said, oh, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so uh, he's a reciter, Muqrat. Anyway, he likes to do a bit of stirring. Yani. He's, a, he's, a, he's a quality stirrer. So, you know, he made a, like, a statement. He said, look, he goes, that it's unacceptable. Uh, like, I, like what I said last week. 
He said, why is it that the, the, the Mu'addins get, you know, like, I've jacked this squat, like a couple of hundred riyals, and the Imams, yani, get, you know, five times as much. He goes, that's my first problem. Second problem, he goes, why is it that we have grades? He goes, we have Alpha Imam, Beta Imam, Thingy Imam, because that's the system that they have. So he was basically asking for equality. He's like doing a major shake-up, yani, and obviously big controversy in, in Saudi over that. And NBC, obviously Lebanon, they always wanted to get one in on the Saudi, so they went in and made a big feature out of it. Anyway, that guy, that presenter, I remember he, he plays the clip from Adil Kilbani, and then he says, he says, we need to fix this. He goes, we need to fix this. He goes, if someone comes for me, <laughs> you know he has that very kind of you know, direct way of talking. He goes, if someone comes to me for my daughter, I'm going to say, what do you do? If he says to me, Imam, I'm like, <laughs> he says this in front of three Imams. <laughs> right in front. All the three Imams are right surrounding him when he says that. He goes, Well, I have no disrespect to any of you. <laughs> he goes, Well, I'm trying to fix your situation. He goes, We've got to, Yanni, we've got to, we've got to uh, uh, give them some, you know, we've got to give them some respect back and we've got to fix this situation. Wallahi is right. Wallahi is right. They don't deserve this kind of nonsense, you know? Um, and they are, they are seen as very much, uh, you know... Anyway, uh, I'm going to get carried away. But the point is, is that there needs to be a definite change in attitude amongst the Muslims themselves that they have to value their people. And it's a shame because that value should not be coming through putting them more at risk of, of ruining their intention because the more you increase the salaries, then the person is going to then actually say, well, you know what, compared to a plumber or a doctor, actually, you know what, 60 grand a year, that's a good profession for an imam. So you're actually making it more difficult for him to be a quality imam with quality ikhlas for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But I do not know any other way of fixing the problem of the people other than increasing his wages. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and sorry, and, and, and the other point was is that the Mu'addin, I said, he should get the same amount of e uh, money as long as there isn't someone, you know, who can do it. And in this country, we've got the half the uh, country, all retired uncles, they can do it, right? And let them do it, right? But in the absence of those guys who are not doing it, then the person who's going to then be there, then they should do it. And I always say there's a very quick, easy get around for this. The people are really, if they're people online, whatever, worried for their own masjid how to actually contractually do this, then contract the imam not just to lead the prayers and his job done. Make the imam someone who's responsible for the interfaith, responsible for visits, responsible for meeting certain groups of people, responsible for whatever. And then you will see that all of the scholars, and I'm talking Sheikh Uthaymin, Sheikh Salah al Fawzan, Sheikh uh, Abdul Karim al Khudair, Sheikh, all, all of the major scholars of current times, they all allow the taking of payment um, due to a need. Due to a need. We say that there is a need. Not only do we say there's a need, we say that it's not directly just for the leading of the Salah. Because they are worried, and we like their worry, we like their concern, they are worried that a person starts to get into the mode of, you know what, if you don't pay me 500 quid, I'm not leading the Fajr prayer. And if you give me another hundred quid, then I'll be, they don't want to avoid that situation. We get that. Get, make it a job role. Make it, yani, you are the imam responsible for all this and that. And the payment is, in, is recompensed for the tiredness, for the amount of time that you stay away from your family. Work, basically. The concept of work in a general sense. And then the, the problem is solved. So I want to say that even though the humbly position is that it's not allowed to take a, a salary, but it is to take a, but you can receive a non-contractual gift. The class position is my position, and that is that it is permissible to take a salary for both imama, deen, teaching, 
every single thing uh, uh, that's uh, connected to Islamic sciences and it's the problem people have got to solve their problem that they are of perception not the imam the imam only needs to focus or the muaddin needs to focus on I got to make sure that this money is secondary to what I'm doing it that I am doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to end this section Sheikh Uthameen was asked a question is it possible for a man to teach the Quran for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then for the sake of money and he said la ba'sabih there's no problem with that. And so that's the basic principle. You do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Make that your reason. It's your passion. You love it. You want the ajr for it. And you do need some money as well. So I'll take the money for it as well. And I'll make it contractual because I need to support my family. And Allah knows best. Okay? All right? We'll just take a couple of quick questions. And the rest of the questions we will push over because my guest Yanni has been waiting for far too long. Who, now. Who answered that question? Sheikh Uthami. Yeah. Yeah, so you come up with permissibility here, but you mentioned the modern day situation. So if you accept the modern situation is that the state of play at the moment in terms of Islamic knowledge and practice is so poor, surely one of the ways, and if we take just not just imams, we're talking about madrasas now, organizations, Islamic schools, teachers, all of that. To motivate more people is to bring money into it. Yeah. Compared to, you know, equivalence non Islamic yep. work, as it were. Yep. It's always low, isn't it? Yes. To raise the game, then, surely you should be arguing. Surely, yes. Surely yes. However, why don't we? The reason is, is an obvious one. And that is that people will then start to see it as a profession as opposed to something for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you know what? Even though it is a profession and whatever, you've got to get it the right way around. And, and, and the fear is, soon, just imagine, in the current job market, in the current job market, it could be a very attractive position. Let's say that we do turn it around. Let's say the Muslims do become mature. Let's say, let's say that the, the community really starts to see, you know what Islamophobia and all this nonsense and right wing, what it does, it really galvanizes the community. It makes them recognize how important it is for their children to protect their religion. And they start to say, right, now we need good people who do speak English, who do understand the vernacular, do understand the narrative, and we'll pay top money for them, 20 quid now or whatever. And the community gets their thing together. They will start to become good professions. Our question is, is that it is possible to argue that to send a child through the Islamic system to become a scholar is way cheaper than putting them through medicine or law or whatever at 10, 12 grand a year. Yeah, and in this country, it's way cheaper to do the Islamic version and you get a, a, a job which is, obviously nothing's going to be as high, high paid as a doctor or a dentist, yeah, but yeah, it will be something of respectable means. So that's the reason. The fear is that it gets turned around the other way. Yeah? Last point. Uh, so, when you said majority of the scholars allowed to the payment, uh, what if there is somebody who is in a profession like a doctor or dentist or CEO or anybody, and then he is also a teacher, and then he is teaching the Quran, for example? Yes. In, in that situation, what would, would you That's say? a very good question. The question is if a person already receives well enough payment and they are rich or sufficiently comfortable. Is it permissible for them to take then an extra payment from the people for those, for those positions? There's a difference amongst the scholars. In principle, they don't like it. Even though, and it's very important to understand this, that the concept of receiving money for an Islamic work, for an ibadah, Islamic work, okay, is not always connected to your wealth. For example, it is a consensus of the scholars that the one who collects zakah can be paid, because it's from the asnaf, yeah, the eight categories, and that person can be rich. And they still get their wage. So it's not always connected to one's pers person's financial situation. 
So because of the ishtihad in the matter that's required, because that's a fact, but at the same time we know that in general, as you saw the Prophet ﷺ, he wants people to do it yani, as a, a voluntary act. We would say that anyone who has got that job, they've got to try and avoid taking payment because the people on down are down for it. it they're not mature enough. They don't understand. And yani, you yourself, it would be much better for your ikhlas as well. And that's exactly why a job is done on the side. So we try to basically tell them you know, to uh, depend upon that. I want to apologize for everybody that I kept yani, the, the main course for, you know, so, so yani, waiting. This was the starters and it was, it was the, basically it was the... It was the uh, I don't, I don't even go to restaurants uh, to know what a starters are. Shaz, what, what do people have for, for starters in these top restaurants? Tortilla chips. But there were so many tortilla chips. I was the papar. Papar? What is it called? Poppadoms. I was the poppadoms. And there were so many poppadoms. And the mango chutney got finished. And then I went into the raita. That got finished. Then I went to the chili sauce. That got finished. And now it's time for the steak. Now it's time not for the steak, it's time for the mussels and oysters. Because Sheikh Abdul Bari, mashaAllah, he comes from the sick place, yani, where they eat 50 quid oysters for like, I don't know, for free or something. MashaAllah. <laughs> 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 you smell so nice, mashaAllah. Hmm? It smells very nice. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya wa al-mursaleen nabiyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. I don't know why I... I when I'm about to talk, come come forward and talk, he's speaking about food already. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is because the last I was with him last week, <laughs> and we didn't talk about anything but food: oysters, mussels, clams. Now they're gonna think the imams when they get together. That's, <laughs> that's all they what talk they about do. Is just food. It's true. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's true. Fish meat. How to take don't... it out? How to scrape it? Whether you fry it or not. Allah. Don't expose us like that. Come I'm on, proud of it, Yana. I'm so proud. I can see. No, just kidding. <laughs> no. Alhamdulillah. You know, this, uh, it's wonderful to be here and uh, especially um, to actually sit here next to the Sheikh. And I know you guys uh, know his knowledge and so forth. I just wanted to come up here and just, just share a few stories uh, relating to what you guys are talking about. Because when he's speaking about it, I'm thinking about uh, some of the things that, uh, some of the experiences that I've had. Uh, especially in, uh, in Vietnam and Cambodia, there's a group of people um, in central Vietnam. You know, Vietnam used to be a Muslim country. There was a time in which the, the kingdom of Champa was, uh, um, you know, the king accepted Islam and then the people also followed, uh, just like Indonesia and Malaysia and so forth. And then um, the Vietnamese, they came and they pretty much uh, wiped out the, the kingdom of Champa and most of the Muslims fled to Cambodia, to Indonesia, to Malaysia, and other places. And uh, so, but there are a group of people that are in, in the mountainous area. They've been isolated from the, the Muslims for a very long time. I mean, nobody's left to seek knowledge or anything like that. And so, of course, you have a lot of innovations that have crept in. And one of the things that they do, that they have there, is that the imam, the Imam actually prays for the people. I'm not talking about making dua for the people. No. The rich people don't pray at all. It's only the poor people who pray. Right? Only the poor people pray. Why? Because the rich people will give them, will pay the Imam and say, you know, this, I'll give you this, much, this amount of money and you're going to pray for me for the whole year. Next year, inshallah, you know, he'll come again. You know, whether, this, uh, whether the, the, the mount is higher or lower, that's, 
determined by the imam also. And so, the, 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 actually the poor people are the ones who pray. The rich people don't need to pray because they have the money, they can pay the imam. And um, of course it only takes one corrupt imam, you know, to start all of these things. And so, this is, this is actually what they do. And, but sometimes the poor people don't want to pray. And let's say they're traveling or they're going to be busy and they're, they have uh, certain things to do. And so they'll go to the imam and there will be a negotiation. And they'll say, you know what, um, I, I can't, I'm going to be going on a business trip uh, for two weeks. So, you know, imam, what's the going price right now? <laughs> and the imam might say, you know, it's the winter, it's a little bit difficult. So the price will be this and that. And literally, they're like discussing uh, the, the, this matter, and then he'll pay the amount that uh, he has to pay to have the imam pray for him. And um, the, the thing is, um, uh, the imam actually doesn't pray for everyone. All he does is he says, you know, because they're actually, you know, quote-unquote shafiris, right? So the, the intention has to be verbal. You know, so that's what they that's what they believe, and so every time the imam starts the prayer, he'll he'll say, "Usalli salat al-Maghrib, thalatha rak'at, an fulan wa fulan wa fulan wa fulan." They'll mention the name so and so and so and so and so and so and so. He prays one prayer only, actually, <laughs> but he puts in the intention all the people who have paid him, and of course, if he's trustworthy, he'll mention all of them. Right? If he's not trustworthy, he's just like, you know what? Allahu Akbar. Like, right? <laughs> and so, so uh, they actually have. So I think we're in the wrong place when the imams. I'm telling you, like, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. No. I can never argue with the imams. <laughs> so it's really interesting how you know some of these things happen, and the sheikh was mentioning how it, you know sometimes it could it could get corrupted to the point where people are negotiating. And uh, it gets 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 to that point, but of course, you know, when it comes to prayer for some, praying for somebody, literally, it's just the regular daily prayers. That's not uh, something that uh, is permissible. But sometimes, you know, some of these things uh, come fall, come come up because uh, it just only takes one person to really be corrupt, and after that, everything else uh, just uh, continues uh, on that path, and so. Alhamdulillah, you know, I just wanted, actually just came here just to, uh, to sit down here and just to, to see the class. I was actually really looking forward to listening. And, um, you know, you hear a lot, mashallah, and uh, about, uh, uh, about logical progressions and so forth. And it's really, uh, I just like to just to mention that um, we should be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the opportunity to come here, to be able to sit and uh, I know, of course, you know, online and so forth, it's uh, with, with technology that's opened up so much uh, doors for us to seek knowledge even though we're far away and so forth. But there's nothing like really coming to the actual halaqa and the sitting. And that's why it's, there's a big difference when you're going to the sheikh and you're sitting down in front of him, like live in front of him, then, and then just, just, just to listen to a lecture online. And you, you know, you feel the the tranquility and so forth. When especially uh, when you make the effort, and so whenever you have the opportunity, you know, be thankful for that and take advantage of it. And if you if you're thankful for something, you know, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, inshallah, will increase it for you. He'll give you more. Like you know, every morning I look in the mirror and I say, Abdul Bari, you're so handsome. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, Oh Allah, just have just as you have. Uh, 
uh, you know, perfected my features, also perfect my character. <laughs> and then uh, you see the result of it, you know, like <laughs> somebody else is also very thankful, mashallah. You can see the results of it also. But if you're thankful for something, you know, thank, be thankful for the knowledge that we have and the opportunity that we have. And to show thankfulness for what we have, you use it in the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And pay for it. And pay for it, of course. So that's your payment for it. To use it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to uh, apply it in our daily lives, and not to just, it's not just, you know, just to learn it only, but to really apply it and also to teach others also. To teach others, to go home and teach our family members, our brothers and sisters, sit down with them. And, you know, you don't, it doesn't have to be a formal gathering. Just mention like, hey, you know, I heard from the sheikh today that this and this, uh, you know, while maybe while you're cleaning the house or while you're eating uh, dinner together, mention something. I mean, make an effort to do that, to show that you're thankful for that, inshallah. And, 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 show, and if you're appreciative for something, of course, you're also, um, you, when you value something more, you're more likely to remember it. You're more likely to remember if you value something. And that's why, like, for example, we hear people all the time. Um, you know, we meet people all the time. We say, Assalamu alaikum, brother. And the brother says, oh, my name is Ahmed. Um, and he introduces himself to you. And then two weeks later, you, you see him again. And you say, what's his name? Like, you sometimes forget, right? And then, why do we forget Ahmed? But if we were, let's say, if this was a name of a person that you were thinking about getting married to. Let's say someone suggested that, you know, hey, so-and-so has a daughter, and, you know, I think you should really, you know, you know see if, if you see if you uh, think seriously about, you know, maybe uh, getting married to her. And you might not know her name, and maybe your, your brother or your sister they're talking about, or your parents are talking about, and her name, for example, is Fatima. Like Fatima, that name, just, you just heard it one time only. But you will never forget it for the rest of your life. Even if someone clobbered you with a bat, you'd wake up and still remember that name. But why didn't you remember Ahmed? Why didn't you remember Ahmed? Ahmed is, you know, Ahmed. But we're talking about marriage here. Right? We're talking about marriage. Something that's important to you. And so our brains categorize things according to importance. So if you value something, you're more likely to remember it you're more likely to memorize. And that's why the great scholars, they love this deen and they value, value it a lot. So every narrator in the hadith, to them is like, like Fatima to us, even more. Because they valued so much. And, you know, for, and if you um, don't value something, like nowadays, especially when you think that you can always ask Sheikh Google, like anything you need something, just type it up and it will come... And you think it's always, it's always, you know, uh, at your fingertip. All you have to do is type something and it'll come. Then when you have that, um, that, men, that, that mindset, you're less likely to, um, you're, less, you're less likely to memorize the, the knowledge, the hadith, or whatever it is that you're reading, because you think you can always search it back. And that's why in the old days, I remember growing up, I don't know, you guys, uh, I used to remember everybody's phone number. And now, believe it or not, don't. I, mean, I hope this doesn't get to my wife, but she just got a new phone. I mean, new phone, not new, brand new, but it's been six months, but I still don't know her phone number. 
Like, I don't remember it because all I do is just, well, it's because it's on speed dial, number one, of course. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> so you just press that and that's it. You know, but you don't memorize uh, phone numbers anymore. And so I remember one time I didn't have my phone. My phone died. I'm trying to call. I, I don't know her phone number. I don't know her phone number. I had to call someone else that I knew <laughs> to ask for my own wife's phone number. Uh, why? Because we think it's always going to be there. We think it's always going to be there. So the knowledge isn't what, it's in the books or online and so forth. It's what you memorize. And that's something that, and if, it, it, it's easier for you to memorize if you really value something, if you respect the scholars, you respect this Quran, Sunnah, you respect this knowledge, then it makes it a lot easier. So, you know, you have to have that respect. And coming here also, it shows you know that we're thankful for it and have the to have the opportunity uh, to learn and to make that effort. Even though sometimes I know I know it's on the weekdays it's a little bit tougher than in the weekend weekends, right? So to make that effort, may Allah Subhanahu reward the Sheikh and reward all of those, um, all of you um, and everyone, and teach us that which benefits us and benefits benefit us from that which has taught us. Which is I just want to make it uh, clear, everyone online um, and those who are here, Sheikh, of course, will be uh, speaking at... Um, they can hear, they can hear, that's fine. Um, Sheikh, of course, will be speaking at Ilmfest this weekend, which I was meant to be at as well, but uh, uh, some of you will already know uh, that later this week I will be getting my knee sorted out, so um, that will not allow me to be there. Uh, but I hope that everyone... Uh, certainly uh, from Manchester, that's the one we last had, and I was mashallah, that was very good. I remember that fondly. Um, I hope that you guys will be able to make your way to Harrogate. Um, do we say Harrogate here in Manchester? Harrogate. It's Harrogate, isn't it? Yeah? Harrogate. Yeah, it is Harrogate. Harrogate. Yeah, because some people might pretend to be posh and say Harrogate, <laughs> but it's not. Yeah. Just don't do your best, Yanni, yeah? and call it Harrogate. <laughs> it's Harrogate. Uh, and the Birmingham one as well, and of course, it's uh, Sheikh Abdelbari will be there, as well as Sheikh Amr Suleiman, uh, Sheikh Walid Bissiyun, Sheikh Saad Islam, and uh, all the Mashaykh, mashallah. Uh, so, um, we have the uh, tickets available at the back as well, inshallah, as well. And the other thing I was going to say is that make sure that if you can take your families, because it's good fun for the kids as well. Um, uh, they have a number of activities, and it's a good day, alhamdulillah. And the topic I think is important. Um, uh, the topic is on Fitna. And I've been involved in the program myself, even though I'm not there uh, physically, but uh, certainly uh, I know that the the aspects of fitan that will be covered is not like what you just might think, you know, just uh, uh, military or, you know, killing and oppression, whatever, but the other more popular and the more common fitan that happen to us on an individual basis and in our families as well. So, you're, you know, it's uh, it's something which is a beneficial topic and it's a good end to two weeks of uh, of holiday and um, I, I always I just you know one thing that I'd like to say is that you know when we have holidays that are connected to an act of worship to, of another religion uh, I think it's very very important as Sayyidina Umar used to say uh, that we increase in our own so our own acts of ibadah increases yani, as a as a, almost like a response so and that's something to show that it's not necessarily about knocking theirs but it's about increasing ours and so if you haven't had a great two weeks so far of studying and increasing hifs and making extra dhikr, then at least make sure that your holidays go out yani, on Saturday, Sunday, this weekend by attending. So inshallah, I hope you guys will go and represent yani, me, Miskeen, 
because uh, I can't be there. Right. And Sheikh Abdul Bari, of course, uh, will be uh, welcoming you there as well. Jazakumullah khair. I appreciate everyone who stayed over for the little slightly extra, but it was worth it, alhamdulillah. Wajazakumullah khair. Subhanakallah. Bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta wa astaghfiruka. Allahumma wa atubu alaykum. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.